Soccer's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Yo, what is happening? Welcome back to Chasing Poker Greatness, the podcast that takes you inside the greatest minds in poker. Their stories in their own words and their own voices. I'm your host, Brad Wilson, and my guest today has had a tremendous influence on the game of poker, both online and off, through his perspectives on game strategy, coaching techniques, mental health, and more. My conversation today is with professional poker player, coach, and author Tommy Angelo. Tommy has been playing poker professionally since the mid-80s, preferring to play almost exclusively in live cash games. Having already accrued more than a decade of pro poker experience when most people were just beginning to discover and play the game, he quickly found himself with a successful coaching career as the popularity of poker began to grow and online games exploded. Still one of the most popular books among serious poker players, Tommy's first book, Elements of Poker, was released in December of 2007. Since then, he's written four more books on poker and one more on the topic of meditation, something he has practiced daily without missing a day for more than 15 years. Tommy has also either written or regularly writes for many popular poker publications, including Poker Digest, PokerPages.com, Bluff Magazine, and Poker News, as well as being a regular poster on the 2 Plus 2 Poker Forums, where, by the way, he inadvertently became the creator of the name The Hijack for the seat at the table just before the button and cutoff. He has coached some of the most well-known professional players in poker over the years and is highly regarded among them for his unique way of looking at the game and his invaluable advice about how to deal with the tough mental aspects that come with playing cards for a living. During our conversation, you'll hear countless bits of wisdom that will undoubtedly help guide you on your path to poker greatness. Thank you once again. And now, without any further ado, here is Mr. Tommy Angelo on Chasing Poker Greatness. Tommy, my man, welcome <laughs> welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning. So you, you've been around. You know, you've, you've been in poker long before the moneymaker boom. I wanted to start out our talk by asking you about your transition from musician to poker player what did that look like what was the catalyst how'd that happen well the catalyst was that i've been hooked on poker since i was like 14 that's when i started playing for money and all during my 10 years as a musician in the 80s i still i played poker with my buddies and um there was one article in new yorker magazine my mother gave to me and it was about Doyle Brunson and all these guys and, and the beginning of the world series of poker. And I was just like headed in my head my whole life. As soon as I ever heard of there being such a thing as a professional poker player, I thought I might be one someday. And so then the end of my music career happened in 89 and 90, I developed a thing called temporary threshold shift. I was playing a country rock band. We were just loud as hell. We played 
six nights a week, five hours a night for years. And basically I blew out my left ear and I was wearing earplugs and, you know, one thing led to another. So I left the music business and jumped right into poker full time. That was in 1990. And at that time I was playing in a circuit of illegal home games in Columbus, Ohio. And that's where I made my living for seven years. The first seven years of my poker career was in home games. And um, so you're asking about the transition. That was basically it. I ran into hearing problems, but I always had it in my mind that someday I would play poker for a living. Right, right from the jump. Yeah. Um, and it was just like love at first sight, hearing, hearing yeah. about cards. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was raised in a household of games and puzzles. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I was just recently writing up my very first time playing for money, but it was literally pennies and nickels at my buddy's house. I was 14 years old. I was raised Catholic. I was like, I'm not going to gamble. You guys are all degenerates and all this. You know? <laughs> and then I, but I knew how to play poker. I had played with my brothers as a kid, just for funsies with chips. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, just got hooked immediately, you know, and that was it. And so, you know, when people ask me, why did I choose to be a professional poker player? I say, it chose me. I was so addicted to poker. And I don't mean that in a negative way. It was just, you know, that's all I wanted to do. So I had to learn how to win so that I could play poker all the time. That was really <laughs> exactly what happened to me. Good thing you weren't born a billionaire. You, you <laughs> oh, I never ne- would have pursued it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you never would have had to learn how to win. You could just lose forever. And Right. Okay. Oh, yeah, that um, too. How, how did your family and friends, what did, what did they think? Were, hmm. were you married at the time of this transition? Because this is, you know, even a, a way different time than me in mm-hmm. 2004. Like I, I, when I decided that I, I wanted to try to be a professional poker player in 2004, I, I was working at Applebee's and like literally people laughed in my face when I oh, told yeah. them what I was doing. So in the nineties, oh. I have to imagine yeah. probably oh, not crazy, probably rough. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a lot of stories. I've got a lot of stock lines that I would come up with for people, you know, like one of them, People would say, you know, well, what do you do about retirement and taxes and, and health insurance? And I would say, well, taxes, I pay it. Health insurance, I buy it. And retirement, retire from what? <laughs> right? So anyway, I was married at the time when I made the move. It kind of happened. Wait a second. No, I was not married yet. I was with the woman who I did marry after I went pro. But I mean, we were committed. And, uh, and she had a daughter. You know, we're not together anymore. But... It was really rough. I mean, it was what what made it extra rough. I mean, at least when you went pro, it was at a time when awareness of poker was going up and, and the ability to get good faster was going up soon after you got in, right? But back then, it was like I, I, my whole – I was not together at all. I mean, I would succumb to every – thing there was right so it, i was barely holding it together as what do you what do you mean by succumb oh, oh, to just everything? terrible health habits uh you know drinking cocaine pot just just lost in the whole gambling extravaganza so it it, it wasn't like i could like today if i presented myself hey, yes i'm a professional poker player they can look at me and they say wow this guy's got his shit together right i didn't have it together at all back then no, I, I think you overestimate people. I think like even today, it's so such a rare thing, like, you know, getting a haircut and the hairdresser is like talking about, you know, making small talk. And like the response always is you can make money doing that. Like, oh, yeah, I, yeah, I, still, like th- right. that's always the response. Like I think yeah. like when you're immersed in poker 
especially uh-huh. you, you live in Vegas, right? Uh, no, Oakland, California. Oakland. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah well, the Bay Area, that, that's a pretty good, oh, yeah. po- we got pretty a good poker, poker spot yeah. too. But yeah, like that's people, people just still don't know. It's still, you know, a fairly relatively small niche and not many, not, there's not many professional poker players around. Um, and, and number two, when I started, you know, there was Super System. Uh-huh. There was a theory of poker. Super System was around in the 90s too, right? Like oh, yeah. did you, you had access to Super System. Yeah. You know, there's, there still wasn't like a ton of training sites. Like card runners hadn't come around yet. So it was that. still, you know, I, I think, you know, I leaned on my friends. And I was very, very, very lucky and blessed that I had a, an extremely talented friend mm-hmm. that – helped push me forward and i think that without that yeah uh, it would have been a, a massive 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 struggle totally it's critical i mean the the first the book that changed the world was called uh hold for advanced players by sklansky and mammoth in 87 mm-hmm. you know that was the first book ever that had a starting hand chart anything like that and then their books in the 90s were basically all we had and to work with and each other you know buddies right that was that was the only education available yeah, it's a much different time. But the other thing is, because there was so little education, the games were way softer. Oh yeah, that's that's the alternative, yeah. right? Like, yeah. <laughs> it, it's great. It's great having the knowledge and the education. But yeah. the downside is everybody has the knowledge right. and the education, and so right. it, it makes the games tougher. Yeah, they're really. And the '90s, you could say, was sort of like a golden age of professional poker. In that, even though the whole poker world was much smaller, the ratio of people who were accessing good information. Was it was like almost nobody relative to the number of people playing, and so if you got your hands on these books and you studied and worked on your game, you're going to have a big edge right away. And I'm assuming you read those books, you dove into the studying right away. Oh yeah, the- oh yeah, constantly. Yes, from I started really studying poker hard in '87, and did then you, turned pro in '90. Did you have success when you turned pro? Like directly after. Were there any struggles? Oh, yeah. What did that look well, like? So Besides defini- the cocaine. <laughs> no, no, but my definition of success is solvent. Okay, that's it. Survive. Right? right. And so, yes, I was supremely successful in that I did survive. <laughs> and take care right. of the people that you love. I think that's... Exactly. Exactly. The way I put it is I never had to pass up a concert because of the ticket price. That's yeah. my definition of success. Never have to look at the menu, the price, right. price well, of things uh, on the menu. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> it depends on where you're eating, I guess. Uh, never have to look at the price of gas, I think. That, yeah. That's that's the thing I, I don't think I've ever looked at is like the, the price of gas. Right. I just buy gas yeah. and go on. Right. So you were successful. And then – Well, going let's go to the next, the next chapter was yeah, in the next 1997 chapter. is when I moved to California. And now all of a sudden I had – 24-hour access to mid-stakes and high-stakes games all the time. So it's kind of like the first seven years I survived in Ohio. And during that period, I traveled a lot to Vegas, Atlantic City, and I learned during those trips a great, great deal, playing against real pros, right? And then when I moved to California in 1997, that was was when I really jumped off the cliff. You know, I was away from friends, family. I came out here totally alone. The only person I knew out here was my brother. And... um, and I had 24-hour access, and I had discipline issues still, playing too long and all that, right? So that was really dangerous, and I, and, uh, I did fine. You know? so, that was, 
So from 97 until No Limit got to the casinos, it was limit hold'em all the time. Except, here's a kind of a neat little thing a lot of people don't know. In the Bay Area, okay, so No Limit Hold'em moved into the uh, online around 2001, moved into the poker rooms around 04, we'll say. Okay, where people started playing cash games in legal poker rooms. In the Bay Area, it's been here since 1987, since California legalized Hold'em. And that's because there's one casino called Artichoke Joe's that was already playing No Limit Draw. And they just adapted it to No Limit Hold'em, not because it was No Limit Hold'em. I mean, it's a crazy <laughs> story. Yeah. But it grew all the way up around the Bay Area. So there's been people grinding for a living at No Limit Hold'em here since 87. So when I got here in 97, I was able to learn from a handful of really great pros. Okay. That's a big uh, edge. Yeah. And that was six years before the No Limit craze. So that's why when No Limit took hold and I started coaching in 2004, I was ahead of the game. I was already able to coach No Limit at that time. Yeah, you had had like a decade of experience. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, when I, when I started playing on the boat in 2005, uh, I was barely 21 years old and they didn't spread No Limit. Like I started playing 5, 10, and 10, 20 limit because they didn't spread No Limit cash games. And this was, you know, 2005. Yeah. Year. So it, it's funny, most people can't imagine going to a card room and them not spreading No Limit Hold'em, but like, that's, yeah. just, that's just how it was. Even the online games where there were like 25 big blinds buy-in on party poker. It was like, yeah, yeah. You, you can, it's a two, uh, one, two game and max buy-in's like 50 bucks. Right. <laughs> like you can't even really imagine um, the landscape that it was back then, but yeah. that, that's just how it was. Um, it changed so fast. So, so you're, you had discipline issues, and by that, putting in too many hours. Um, when you moved out to the Bay Area, was that, you know, the did you get divorced and then move out? Was that the the transition there? Um, yeah, uh, Tammy and I split up around 2004. So, mm-hmm. for, and then the next three years in Columbus, I played and I also ran games. In 2004. I'm, so, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Ni- 1994. Okay. 19 <laughs> is when Kim and I broke up. And then nine, from 1994 to 1997, I was playing in Columbus, but also ran games. And that's how I built a, enough of a bankroll to actually move to California with, you know, 50 grand mm-hmm. to play 2040 limit. So, um, yeah, I came out here. I was totally totally single. And then, so the, the next five years or so was really the prime part of my career where I was just me and my buddies and I was doing nothing but playing poker, writing about poker and that's it. (laughs) And then um, Kathleen and I met in 2001, we didn't get married till 2005. And then, you know, we're going to be talking about performance and all that, Stuff right. This is the real big turnaround for me. Was on August eighteenth, two thousand three. Why do you remember the date? <laughs> because, well, see, uh, anybody who quits drinking one one time always knows the date it happened, and that's what we're talking about. So I I I didn't even have an alcohol problem until about a year before I quit drinking. I developed a thing called late onset alcoholism. So I had a lot of experience of drinking from playing country bands and my Italian family. But I never drank alone. I didn't even drink when I played poker, like ever. I always smoked a lot of pot. Why? Why did you start drinking? Um, that there's 
conceivable reasons. There's ways to explain that. Well, yeah. actually, I'm going to just blame it on online poker. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because I ended up quitting online poker and drinking on the same day. They sort of developed, and I wasn't the only one who developed this weird sort of, you know, mild buzz drinking habit while playing online poker. Anyway, that's what happened. I quit it all at the same time because I got a DUI. But the, but the part of this backstory that's relevant is that that was the, um, I decided right then to start doing yoga every day. And, and you know, I wasn't just going to quit drinking. I wanted to really get my life together. And I'd been in California long enough at that point. Remember, I'm an Ohio boy. All the yoga stuff seemed kind of crazy when I got here. But after six years and knowing so many people that were into better mental and physical health, I was like, hey, you know, I want that. And so I decided to start doing yoga every day. And, and, and when I go into something, I research heavily. So I started reading everything, and that it led me immediately to sitting meditation, formal sitting meditation, the Buddhist version. Okay, I'd never heard of such a thing. As soon as I started doing yoga every day, after about a week, I realized, okay, I have to never skip a day, ever. We'll talk about that coming up. But I knew that because I had quit and started all kinds of things over the years, cigarettes and whatever else, right? So when I started reading about sitting meditation, I was like, holy shit, this is the grand poupa of meditation, right? This was like the ultimate version. That's, that's how it seemed to me. So I was like, I'm going to do this. So I learned how to do it. And I started doing it about a month after I started doing yoga. And I haven't missed a day since 15 years. I see somebody coming in back there. That looks just like our cat. Yeah. Uh, she's always um, wanting to, always wanting to get involved in the show. <laughs> so it was only, you know, I was already 45. I'd already bounced along the bottom enough. And I knew that once I started doing this practice, I was like, this is it. All I have to do is never drink again and I'll do my sitting meditation every day. And, and things are going to get a lot, lot better. And, and that's exactly what happened. So, you know, my whole coaching business, my whole writing business, none of that would have happened had I not started meditating. And how did you hold yourself accountable to meditating and doing yoga every single day? Because I know I know enough about performance to know that accountability is self-discipline is a very hard thing, um, mm -hmm. pretty much a crappy way to get things done. So how did yeah. you, how did, what system yeah. of accountability did you, did you yeah. use to not miss any days? We could spend the rest of the interview asking, answering that question. <laughs> um, so I, um, I've written five books, four of them are poker books. One of them is a book about meditation and the title is called Dailiness. And the subtitle is How to Sustain a Meditation Practice. And so I've worked with a lot of coach poker players who are beginning meditators and who started and stopped and wanted to keep going. So I have a great deal of experience with the whole act of starting and stopping things that we want to do every day. Like, let's say we're trying to lose weight or whatever, or quit smoking cigarettes. Okay. Go to the gym, get fit. Exactly. Um, yeah. Whatever it is. Or some, maybe you want to do that three times a week. Go to the gym. But then you go on vacation. And you miss a week and then you miss another week and two months goes by and you're beating yourself up. And this is the cycle, right? Because I'd been through that cycle so many times and various things, I was like, okay, this is the time I'm going to end the cycle forever. I'm never going to go through that again. I just had enough of that pain. I'm practically crying telling you about it, right? And so the whole gist of the book dailiness and the concept of dailiness is that you take the option away. You know, one of the lines in the book is, and it, it doesn't matter whether it's about meditation or anything you want to do every day. You know, I've. 
I didn't know how to do that a year ago, but I practice harmonica every day, right? So uh, this one line, I don't have to decide if today is going to be a day I meditate. That decision is gone, right? It's just not an option. So I basically make it like a life or death thing. You burn the boats. That's uh, I I think it was uh, Hernando Cortez. They were coming to North America, and you know they're they're explorers, and they were going to go to war, and they were severely outnumbered. And his his crew, his soldiers, were feeling very anxious about the battle, and he didn't think they were going to go through. So at night, he burned the boats. Right. So they can't go back home. They have no choice now but yes. to, to push forward. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so, so what I realized was the, um, I, what I did was right from the beginning, I strategized for what am I going to do if I have a cold? What am I going to do if I have to go to an uncle's funeral? And I'm going to be there depressed for four days. How am I going to maintain my practice? And that was, that kind of shows you the level of priority it was. I realized that it was like, this is it. You know, this is my one shot. I was with uh, Kathleen. I mean, that was a big part of it. You know, when I coach guys and we talk about some of these things, they're like, yeah, yeah, but, but I don't really don't have a fire inside. I was really lucky to have sort of like a pot of gold hanging in front of me, which was if I just hold my shit together now, my, my love relationship with the woman who is now my wife was so awesome. It was like, I can't fuck this one. up. I've fucked up so many in the past, not this time, you know? So I was extra motivated. Yeah. It's it, basically, I'm a broken record on this podcast now talking about emotional goals, but that's an emotional goal, uh, an emotional driver behind the behavior a lot of times you say, you know, poker players, especially, I want to make more money. I want to increase my hourly rate. But that's not an emotional goal. The emotional goal is what can you do with that money? How does it change your life? How, how do you, can you send your children to college? Can, you know, all of these things that are behind the money, like those are healthy and emotional goals. And maintaining a relationship with the love of your life is, of course, the most emotional goal that you can, you can come up with, I think. Yeah, very true. So how did the meditation specifically, how did that affect your poker game? It made me, well, the short version is it made me calmer and more focused because meditation is training at focusing. So if you're sitting there trying to count to 10 breaths and you get to four and you lose track and you realize you're thinking and then you start over at one, that is training at focusing. No, no different than lifting weights. If you do that 100,000 times, you're going to get really, really good at focusing. And so I, I used, and by focusing, I mean paying attention to the game. Awareness. Knowing, you know, knowing, what every, knowing every single thing that's happened in the game, every little move. And not, not just in the game, but, and this, this comes into play, I'm sure, especially with your coaching and the mental game side of it but also having an awareness of how you feel on the inside uh, an awareness of your emotions oh. in real time is oh, absolutely. invaluable yes. to poker players. Well, I was getting to that. <laughs> sorry. There's, sorry. There's, <laughs> you know what I mean? There's a number of specific ways that, that meditation has improved my poker game. Mm-hmm. One of them is just the ability to just watch the game and not be tempted to go to my phone and watch whatever. Okay. Just focusing. Then the other one is 
just calmness, re, re, uh, re-establishing a state of calm. And the way I do that is I, I sit up straight before every single hand. I take a mindful breath and I place my hands mindfully on the table and I have my feet flat on the floor. So this is how I approach every single poker hand of my life, right? That's quite a bit different than this. You know, I mean, now, now it took me probably 10 years of training at the table after I started meditating to get to where I was this consistent, right? But my effort all the time, every time I went to play was I want to meditate more at the table. By meditate, I mean being aware of whether I'm breathing in or out. That's it. Nothing else. And sitting straight. And so all of that goes right to what you were saying, awareness of my own thinking. Okay. So, but, but it, it takes the posture and the breathing to, to create that little wedge of awareness that it then allows me to actually witness my own pain and joy. You can't just decide you're going to do it. There has to be some almost like a physical mechanism to allow it to happen. The physical ne- mechanism is the body awareness. This is how it works for me. And then, so I just lost two, you know, I just flopped a set and the guy spiked a two out on the river to beat me with the bigger set. I just lost my stat. That's all I can do all that self conscious checking in with my own mindset, like over and over and over and over. Right. And so the sheer repetition of doing that over these last 16 years, since I started meditating at the table, it, that was part of it. Then it also allowed me to practice specific Plugging specific leaks. I'll give you an example. So one of my leaks was, let's say I was, had played a really good session and, and I'd been card dead for about an hour and I'm going to be leaving in about half an hour. And I'm like, you know, I kind of deserve a little action. I, you know, I, I, really, I really would like to see one more decent flop or a turn or, you know, have one more little thrill, one more bit of fluctuation. And so it used to be way worse than that. I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to jam it up. It's the last, I mean, it depends on how far back you go. <laughs> yeah. You know, the last half hour always needed a little action in it if, if there hadn't been enough before. And I knew this. So then I started training consciously at my last lap. I would decide, okay, this is going to be my last lap. And I am going to play exactly as consistently tight before the flop right now as I would if I had just sat down in the game. I call it lockdown mode, right? Because I like to start out really, really tight. Anyway, it doesn't matter. This was um, this is an example of the type of specific leak I could plug with the training that was available because I had awareness of my mind. I could decide before I went to the casino, hey, every day this week, I'm going to practice to work on that last half hour. So I did that for years. So now when I play, I go to Vegas, I go for five days, and I play – Four 90-minute sets per day. I play 90 minutes. I take a half-hour break, go up to my room, do some stretching, come back down, play another 90 minutes. Then I take about a four-hour break and eat, and go visit a friend or and take a nap or whatever. Then I play two more 90-minute sets. It's a six-hour day. That's my poker day in Vegas. It doesn't vary. It took a long time to get to that point. Right? Why 90 minutes specifically? Because I have found through experimentation that that – I start to lapse at two hours, you know, and so I don't even want to come close to ever leaking. I don't, my objective is to play my A plus game on every street of every hand. How did you come to the awareness? You start, you start uh, slipping at the two hour mark. Is it something you're actively looking for? Yeah. Yeah. Research. Keeping data on yourself, your, your, like exactly your, your state of mind. 
I, this is another thing that I think almost nobody in the poker world does create data points on when they start, you know, when, when their cognitive ability starts getting a little fuzzy. Yeah. And I, I've spoken about this on the show to a lot of people too. And it's, you know, poker is a very mentally taxing game. Um, mm-hmm. and, and when you're talking about, you know, live poker, you're playing one table at 35 hands an hour. When you're, mm-hmm. when you're talking about online, a lot of times you're playing four tables, six tables, 10 tables, and yeah. getting you know hundreds and hundreds of hands, sometimes five hundred or a thousand hands an hour, right. and you just get fatigued. I, I used to beat myself up at, for only being able to play three hours um, yeah. of, of six tables of online poker. I would yeah. say like you know I, I, I can mentally remember telling myself you're weak. Why are you so weak? Like Nananoko can go twelve hours a day at ten tables. What's with you? You you can mm-hmm. you can go six hours maximum throughout multiple sessions at, at six tables. And I've just learned that you know the brain consumes twenty five percent of your body's energy at three percent of the mass. It's a it's an energy hog. And yeah. when you're that in when you're focusing that intensely on a given thing, you burn calories. You get tired. Like yeah. it's just. It's sure. the it's the human condition. There's all this yeah. uh, research on chess players losing tons of weight over the course uh-huh. of like a week of intense con- concentration. Yeah, it's like yeah. you don't think yeah. about it. Like it's yeah. like I would get done with a session and my brain would feel like mush, and people nobody would understand. Like you just sat there for three hours. How could you? <laughs> how could you be tired? But like yeah. that's why you know. Yeah. Yeah. So. After the yoga, the meditation, you you decided to take some time off to to write your book. Why why did you take the time off? Like oh. what what was what spurred that decision? Well, I do. It was really no choice. So so this is even so that was in two thousand six. Okay, so I know I've been meditating three years, but even at that time, I knew that um, up, up till then I had begun long range projects a number of times in my life, and none of none of them. I didn't stick with it. Okay. And, and at any point poker was able to like throw me into a funk. Is even, be, let's say before meditating. How, what do you mean by throwing you into uh, a funk? Uh, like a three or four day depression. Like a, like a downswing. Yeah. Yeah. I would go through a downswing and then I would have a depression where I just wouldn't talk to anybody or answer my door for three days. And that was like my routine. I did that like 20 times. And so I knew that, um, to, to write elements of poker, which was basically I had, you know, hundreds of pages of notes that I had collected from a couple years of coaching. I knew that I had to not play poker during the entire time, because if I did, it would, I would risk that project ending. You know, I could go play poker, get into a little bit of a funk. And I also knew at that time that poker used up the same creative energy as writing. And I, and you know, it, so like I was writing articles at that time, right? And so I could be anyway. It doesn't matter how I figured that out. Well, yeah, I mean, I it, your brain's depleted of energy. Like it's yeah. uh, the creative process. I mean, you, you yeah. need energy, and when when you use so much energy playing poker, it's hard to do anything else. Right, but it happens to even be the same the same type of energy. But so I just knew that the likelihood of the book coming into existence if I didn't play quit playing poker was like 50, 50, maybe higher. You know, I just, it just knew I had to. Right. And I, up at that time, I'd never stopped playing poker for it. <laughs> <The only laughs> thing I'd never even stopped. Uh, 
So, and I also stopped coaching. Now, the other thing that happened there was at that point, I'd been coaching a couple of years and I had coached to a golf and David Benefield and a couple of other heavy hitters. And they said some nice things about my coaching. And then I wrote Elements of Poker. And so right after that is when my coaching business just went crazy. And that's what I was doing, like a three or four day program in Vegas, kind of a high price thing. And I was doing, I did one of those every three weeks for two years. Wow. That was a really intense period. I even quit smoking pot. <laughs> during that period because I was around a bunch of sharp young guys like you and I was like hey, I gotta be I gotta be focused I, I, I want to go back because you know I think this is genius coming up with a strategy to write the book in the first place and removing the obstacles or for having the foresight to to notice the obstacles which probably feeds into the meditation practice and the awareness but mm-hmm. there's also the danger and I've experienced this many times in my poker career too you know you go into a funk when you lose but there's also the danger of winning because when you're winning a lot of money, it's hard to find motivation to invest time into other projects. Oh, so, you know, if you're winning like whatever, you, you have a month where you win like thirty or $40,000 and you think, ah, why do I need to write this book that's exactly. going to earn like fraction of this? Like I'm just going right. to play more poker. So it's another like by not playing, you avoid both sides of the equation, the, the depression and, and the winning. But anyway, yeah. sorry, sorry. Andrew. No, that's fine. That's a really good point. And, you know, another thing was, you know, I've really had three passions my whole life, which is writing, games, and music, playing music. Okay. So I've always been a writer. I've written songs and everything. And I, and I take it very seriously. And so that was the other thing is I didn't, I wanted to dedicate all of my energy to the writing itself. That was another, another part of the decision because I quit coaching too. I just quit everything for basically a year and a half. No income stream. Right, right. Well, you know it, what they say is be- behind every every great writer is a spouse with money. <laughs> <laughs> so you married well. So that I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> that that eased eased the financial hardship it, it, a little. It, it it created options. Let's put it that way. That oh, for sure. Be- that weren't there before. Yeah, I, that I definitely believe that. So, yeah. so you're you decide to take the year off. You you dive into writing. Yeah. Um, tell me about you know the day that you finished the book, um, the release, all of these things, and then your, how it affected your coaching business because, like you said, it it yeah. boomed. Well, it says in the book that um, one of the reasons I wrote the book was for coaching clients because if they read, the, so what was happening was. I had a lot of material I wanted to teach people that was new to them, but that is just material. It isn't really coaching them on their game and their life, right? And so I'll give you an example, reciprocality, which is one of the concepts in Elements of Poker, which is the idea that you have to do something different than the other people do or money won't move. So if we all play pocket aces the same way, nobody actually, you're not really making a profit with pocket aces from that through that lens. Okay. Anyway, it's a neat concept. You can apply it to tilt. You can apply it to everything. Life. Yeah. So, so before elements of poker, I would need to explain that. And then maybe we would have time to talk about it. You know, they were coming away with information, more information and less actual coaching. So when people can read the book first and some of these ideas are already in there and they've already had a chance to practice them and do them, then when the coaching happens, it's just coaching. It's not less teaching, more coaching. So it's a foundational element to it. Yeah. And oh, here's the other thing. It's a great vetting 
thing. This has worked out really well, which is that if somebody reads my, because I have you know, kind of a style as a writer, if it speaks to a person, then they're more likely to, to get value from my coaching. If somebody reads my writing and it's just like they think the jokes are ridiculous or, you know, it's kind of flaky, which is fine. Well, they're not going to hire me. So it's kind of like a self-weeding process. It makes it more likely that the clients that do hire me are going to get good value. And that you'll enjoy the experience. Oh, I that think. too. Very like much a, so. For the coach, you know, the experience can be enjoyable or not enjoyable as well, depending on the students. Right. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that's also – that's a great benefit. Um, the vetting process, if they read it and they're like, ah, screw this guy. He's not fun yeah. and I don't like him. Then right. great. Right. Like it's a, it's a win Next. for, win for both of you. They save exactly. they save the 10 K for the coaching and you save the <laughs> headache of dealing with somebody that you don't like spending time right. with. Yep. So 18 months you, you yeah. get it. Um, it's released. Tell me about life after that. Yeah. Well, it was self-published, you know, which is, and I am a publisher and that is a business. I mean, that, I mean, there's like so many learning curves and so many things there and it's changing all the time. So that was all brand new to me and completely terrifying. Oh, I, I can I imagine. My, uh, my editor, Anna Paradox, if anybody's out there writing anything, look her up, Anna Paradox. She's edited at least seven or eight poker books, Ed Miller, Matt Flynn. But she has been my, my muse and my guiding hand through all of my writing career. So she was instrumental. And then, my wife helped tremendously just get through that. It was tough. And, I, you know, I had, even though I'd been meditating three years and I was learning a little bit about, you know, the nature of ego and the cause of pain and all that, I was still wrapped up in the egoic fears that all writers have when they're releasing their first book, right? And uh, so that was kind of tumultuous. But then it came out. And you don't, ha- you don't have those fears anymore when you no. release no, They're no, gone. no fears. You're completely gone. Yeah. Wow. That's impressive. Uh, we can talk about that. I, it's been quite a journey. Yeah. I, I believe it. That That's like, a, <laughs> that's something that doesn't happen overnight for sure. Yeah. But anyway, the book came out and enough people said enough good things about it that my ego was fine. I didn't go through too much. Too much there. <laughs> and, good thing. Uh, yeah. But then, the, but then, you know, yeah, that's, that's basically it. It isn't like it set the world on fire overnight. I mean, you know, self-publishing, it, marketing, I knew nothing about marketing. It's a different world. Like now there's a lot of information on self-publishing. It's relatively easy. Yes. Um, back then, you know, 12 years ago, I would assume there were lots of obstacles, lots of hurdles. Just there, there's yeah. a massive, there, I mean, there's a massive learning curve for anything that you do like right. creating a podcast, a YouTube channel, yep. A, yep. writing a book, whatever it is, there's, you know, you, you look at, uh, people look at entrepreneurship or solopreneurship as this like sexy ideal. And then when you get immersed in it and you realize I've got to be good at like 160 different things yeah, like exactly. it, it, that nobody even notices or cares yeah. about, <laughs> like, but totally. you just have to, because you don't have a choice. Right. It's like I could I could I could probably name fifty fonts just by looking. <laughs> I mean, you know, like just to give you an example, right? Yeah. Tell me about a back cover blurb. Like the energy that it takes to write, you know, just a back cover blurb to a yeah, book. It's all um, stuff. But yeah. You no, know, but I love it. I, mean, I just love making stuff, creating stuff, you know. Yeah, music, and, music, yeah. games, yeah. writing. Like these are the, the these, technology these... makes it it, yeah, it's you got to learn some technology, but once you learn how to learn the technology, 
And you realize, okay, I just got to learn this, like Final Cut Pro. That took me six months. But now I can dance around in there. You know, it's great. And a lot of times, too, you know, that's the barrier to entry to starting yes. these things, to starting yeah. a Twitch stream or yeah. whatever it is that you want to start. All yeah. these struggles, all these times you right. want to punch your computer and yeah. you you have this self-doubt of, I can't do this. I don't know if I can do this. This is too hard. This is what everybody goes through. And if you totally. keep on going, that's yeah. the barrier to entry. So keep on can, fighting the fight. But I can give one piece of advice, and that is dailiness. No matter how big the software is that you have to learn, if you just go in there for 20 minutes a day and do something, and then some days you'll be three hours a day. That's the whole idea of dailiness. It's like you don't wait for the giant surges. They'll come. But if you do it every single day, whatever it is, it will. some days will be off days. Some days will be great days. But it doesn't matter. You never go a week without growing in that direction that you want to go so powerful yeah you will get better through reps yeah and yeah that that to me is the the real power of meditation because i don't think people think about focus and their emotions enough and focus being like a tangible thing that they can improve and you know there's tons of research now on meditation and just the 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 myriad of health benefits it's like a laughable right it's yeah in comparison with lifting weights and taking care of yourself and physical exercise and you don't even need that data you just need to do it oh oh, exactly just just implement it into your life and then you start feeling the benefits right like they're they're very tangible tangible benefits you know i want to bring up a couple aspects of meditation a lot of the, the way meditation is presented now to young folks is that, you know, you do this and you're going to feel better. And, you know, and you ask, like, why you want to feel better? You know, well, maybe to make more money or, you know. Uh, but ultimately what it comes down to is reducing unhappiness. That's really, if you think about it, why we do anything, why we change anything. You know, why would somebody start to go on a diet? Ultimately, if you keep asking why, that's the reason, okay? The, the part of meditation that, is, that I think is um, really important to research if somebody's getting into this from the beginning, and I do think that you know, all the major religions touch on the idea of compassion for all and that, we're, and, that, and that separation is an illusion, you know, that we actually are, you know, one, okay? Now, um, these ideas, I think, are important for a meditator to have into their mix because, and I was reminded of this of what you said, it's like the awareness of our own thoughts. When we, become, when we sit in meditation over and over, we become aware of that our mind is basically spinning all the time. And we see it, and we learn to not even judge that, not even think there's a problem with that, right? Then what happens is when you're with somebody else and they get angry at you, Instead of thinking of them as a person who's being angry at you, what you see is, is some, you see their unhappiness. You see that they're sad first. Okay. So a good example is like if somebody, if you're walking on the street and, uh, and, oh, oh, and you don't judge why they're upset. So, so if they're blaming you for something you didn't even do, right? This is the transition from pain to non-pain. You can take that moment where somebody is attacking you directly for something you did and you're innocent. And you can turn that into a moment of non-suffering. 
It's like, it really is like a miracle. And, but it, it begins in your own mind because you recognize that everyone has the same noise in their head. Okay. So the idea of this level of, we'll call it secularly spiritual compassion, there doesn't need to be a creator element. This is just humans being humans. You, you learn to recognize their anger or their frustration or whatever it is as just another human mind doing what they do, which is suffer. And they wish things are different than they are. That's a form of unhappiness. So it's like if you see a kid riding down the bike, uh, riding down the street, and he falls off his bike or, so, or a guy, you don't go up. You rush to help immediately because you see he's in pain. There's no thought. It's just an instinctive, compassionate reaction that humans have. You don't go up and ask him, hey, are you a Trump supporter or not? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you don't have to qualify it. There's no judgment. You see the pain and you want to help. When you can see other humans like that, like at the poker table, and there's the drunk asshole in seat two who's giving you shit all night. And instead of reacting in the traditional way, it's like, okay, he's throwing darts at my ego. My ego is going to throw darts back. You just say, here's a guy who's hurting. What can I do to make his life better? Well, probably just not say anything. That's the only thing I can do right now. But you're not doing it as passive resistance or out of being an asshole. You're just like, all right, this guy's hurting. That's okay. So that's the deep level of compassion that can grow from a meditation practice that I don't know how you can get it any other way except just living a long time. And yeah, it's, it's having awareness of the suffering, noticing that this human being, like because the way people act on the outside is a reflection of how they feel on the inside. And so having this awareness that somebody's suffering in their life and this is causing them to project onto you this anger mm-hmm. yeah. um i think that just having that awareness like you said your first reaction is compassion for them instead of anger and right. defense right. um right. followed by offense uh you know let's right. get even let's let's take revenge all of these things yeah. like it's uh fundamentally understanding humans better um right. and reacting reacting in a, in a just a healthier healthier way yeah. you know and I would, I would hear these like well how do you get from here to there and the analogy I heard, which really resonated with me, was if you look at the guys that like karate and they chop blocks of wood, right? They don't start out chopping. Them. <laughs> they right. start out with one this big and then this big and this big. And it, it, it's it's that type of thing. It's lifting weights is the same. You know, yeah, you, you, yeah. you're my brother-in-law, you know, he can bench like 300 plus pounds and I can't, right? So how do I get there? Like, I, don't, I can't just go to the gym and, and bench 300 pounds. Like, as a 150-pound, 5'10 guy, I have to start benching every yeah. day. Uh, not every day, but, you know, I have to create yeah. a practice where I get stronger and stronger and stronger over yeah. time. And, like, that, that's the linear route to get there. You have to practice on a, on a regular basis. Right. And that, that's – I mean, it's just true of anything. Then if you can somehow actually get – train yourself to enjoy the act of exercising, then you got to make it. That's what I've done with writing. (laughs) That's what I did with my writing career. I was like, I looked at every single thing that causes me stress with my writing, whatever it is, at every little level, and and look at the stress itself and not try to fix it by by changing my habits necessarily. But but I wanted it to get to where I, I I would get up. You know, I get up at 4.30. I meditate and do yoga for an hour, and then I write from five thirty to seven. That's when we that's when we met this morning, and uh, I can't wait to to jump out of bed in the morning and get to writing. 
But that's because I tweaked it over and over and over. I've gotten rid of all the little obstacles that are in the way of me having a good time writing. You've made it a a priority. You've prioritized it above all the other things. Prioritized stress reduction in my writing, yes. Which took time and practice (laughs) (laughs) through over many, many, many years. Yeah, back to Um, the earlier point, right. Right, just circles, circles back. Do you feel like you're spending a ton of time trying to improve your game but just aren't seeing the fruits from your labor that you feel you ought to be? Or maybe between work, family, friends, hobbies, and the latest episodes of The Watchmen, you feel like you just don't have extra time laying around to invest into dramatically improving your poker game. What if you could skyrocket your growth and gain clarity on exactly where you're going wrong in a fraction of the time it would take you to figure it out on your own? There's a quote I absolutely love that describes why it will always take you much longer to learn on your own versus having a coach. Quote, you can always tell who the pioneers are because they have arrows in their back and are lying face down in the dirt. End quote. What if, instead of poker being this giant nut that feels virtually impossible to crack, you've been following the path of most resistance simply because you've never had a trusted guide to show you an easier way? How much time, money, and energy is it going to cost you to find poker success all by yourself? Instead, let me, Coach Brad, be your guide. In our sessions together, I'll help you discover a proven path that will dramatically improve your poker game and change the way you approach playing cards. Because my number one priority is to make myself readily available to my students, I require them to commit to a minimum of one coaching session per week, and I will only be accepting up to six students at any given time. So if you're ready to break through the struggles and commit to reaching poker greatness, you can sign up for coaching sessions with me at enhanceyouredge.com slash coaching. One more time, that's enhanceyouredge.com slash coaching. Thank you very much for your time and enjoy the rest of the show. What's the most unexpected thing that's come from doing business with folks in poker? Well, I, I didn't expect to ha- have so many of my clients turn into what I would call friends. I guess, man, that's a tough one. I really, I, I just can't really think of anything I didn't expect. I, I guess I didn't expect to survive as a poker player. <laughs> <laughs> well, here we are 12 years, um, 12 years, right, after Elements of Poker. And yeah. I, was, I did a YouTube Live just two days ago with Ryan LaPlante, who brought you up with no prompting, didn't know that I was interviewing you in two days. I think, you know, the longevity and the value over a decade, like, was that expected when you, when you published the book and put it out there? No, it wasn't expected, but it was strategized to become possible. Okay. So I did write the book and I wrote many of the words and many of the sentences with, with, uh, evergreenness in mind. And I, and I wrote a lot of individual quotes that I thought could latch on. And so one of the ways I market the book is I just made a bunch of slides and I tweet these slides that are quotes from the book. So I'm not, I'm not really, I didn't expect it to have this kind of life this long, but I'm not surprised. 
because I did write it with that intention that it might happen. See, this, th- that, that was a poor question on my part for, <laughs> for the guy that plans and thinks through and like, you know, tries to look at every, all the details, all the small details that maybe other people might, might overlook. What would you say, like, if there's one thing right now, there's somebody that's suffering, they struggle with their anger, they struggle with their tilt, their emotions at the poker table. What's the most high impact thing that human being can do to uh, take a step towards reducing that right now? Meditation. I mean, was that a trick question? <laughs> no, it's not a trick question. Where, 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 where do they go to start meditating? Oh, okay. Um, Here's where they go. So these are the two books I recommend. I mean, and there's a lot of good books out there. These are the two I recommend anybody getting started. One of them is by a Westerner. One of them is by a monk. Okay. Wherever you go, there you are by John Kabat-Zinn. And these are the two of the top, top meditation authors in the world. And then the other one is a book called The Miracle of Mindfulness by Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a Vietnamese monk. Um, who lives in France. I think that my book, Dailiness, I wrote that specifically for people like us. You know, uh, um, the premise of the book is that the reader doesn't need convincing that meditation is a good idea. This is for people that just want to do it. Okay. And I kind of say, you know, if you want, if you need, actually, I took this part out, but there was a thing that said, (laughs) if you need convinced, go do that somewhere else and come back. Okay. But I really, really think that that book, I tried, you know, I've worked on a long time to boil it down. It's only like 110 pages to the real meatiest, most useful stuff for anybody that wants to meditate. So it has the stuff in there about overcoming obstacles, but it also has how to do it, how, what to do when you sit. Okay. So uh, now another thing that's good that I, that uh, are guided apps. And I, I talk about that in the book. So there's, my um, headspace and uh, calm. Have you heard of those? Yeah, I have calm. Okay. I have a okay. Calm subscription. So here's my little spiel on that. For somebody starting out, that's a great way to go. If especially if you're of the podcast generation and that works for you, right? However, I also would urge anyone who uses those to experiment with just sitting meditation. And it's a drastically different experience because it's just you and your mind and body and there's no human voices. You know, those apps are wonderful for what they do. It's definitely way, way, way better to use those apps than to not do any meditation at all. But I think that a, a more a, a well-rounded practice that will ex- accelerate your path further. You know, one analogy is like guided apps are sort of like walking. You know, it's great exercise, but you're not going to build muscle. You know, to really build the focusing muscle hard, that's what sitting meditation is. That analogy isn't exactly right, but for, for our purpose, it's true enough. You know, it's just, it, it's just harder to sit there by yourself for 10 or 20 minutes with nothing else around and commit to doing that every day. However, because it's harder, the impact is greater. Like, like a lot of things in life, you, yeah. you know, the, the guided meditations give you an anchor um, they can oh, remind, and one they more can thing, you're you. talking about for beginners, you do need input. You need to be reading messages about how to do meditation, about compassion, either Buddhist version. I mean, if you're Jewish or Catholic or whatever, go to the spiritual teachings that you're familiar with and read the stuff that's about being good to each other. You know, get those thoughts in there. Have that part of it. 
there's a if you want to look up the Buddhist version of pure generosity, it's called bodhisattva. You know, that's a word. It's a, it's like a vow. And and I'm not saying people would do that, but you need to be reading these ideas about compassion and, and as part of a healthy practice to uh, to optimize really the time that you're spending in in sitting is to is to put these thoughts in your mind. Yeah, you definitely want to maximize the results, right? Like I think mm-hmm. with any endeavor, optimize the energy that that you're spending and. How, how can they get these inputs? Like, is there is there an app to or a email newsletter? Where could one find something to just give them these daily inputs, these reminders? Oh, well, just books. Just read books. I'm, I mean, I, you know, what I'm talking about is, um, it, it, of course, I I know my path really well, and there are, there are a lot of other books. There's there's some great books by by non monks, you know, written for our, our types. But I find like another book by Thich Nhat Hanh called the, uh, the Heart of Buddha's Teaching. You know, once you find a couple books that speak to you on these topics, then you can just reference those books over and over. You don't have to keep reading new stuff because as your practice develops, each time you read them, you'll get more out of them. It's really, really true. Um, so find a couple books and just reference those on a regular basis. Yeah, that's that's a good way to go. There are other people, just like with poker, that always want to read the newest, latest book. It's fine, but you just need fresh input coming in. It's not hard to find. Um, I could very easily take us off track here because meditation is something that it's a uh, it's a big interest of mine. It's it's a practice that I've I've done on and off for the last four or five years and has made just a giant impact on my life. But I do want to, I, I, I really, I really, really have this curiosity, this piece of me. And I'm not, I'm not sure the audience is curious, but I'm curious if you've gone to a meditation retreat for any significant amount of time and the results of that, your experience there. You know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I haven't, uh, but I know a lot of people who have, I know a lot about what goes on different retreats and each one's different depending on all sorts of different things. Uh, interestingly, I live, uh, you know, I used to live over on the peninsula, south of San Francisco. Now I live in Oakland, which is right next to Berkeley. And so this is, there's a lot of meditation and yoga and, and stuff like that around here, centers, right? I've never been to one. I've never been to a group meditation sit, even, even one time. Why not? And well, it, it's kind of interesting. It's like, I have kind of a smart ass answer to that, which is, you know, I haven't clown, climbed Mount Everest and nobody's asked me why I haven't done that. You know, so there are a lot of things I don't do. I always feel like I don't necessarily need to have a reason for not doing something. But anyway, you, you don't. But, but I do but, have an answer. <laughs> okay. The, the reason I ask is because like, you know, just I find that in life, like experimentation, right? You, you, you can get something out right. of something that you don't yeah. necessarily foresee. Like right. if you go and you're like, uh, this was silly. Why did I do this? Okay. Yeah. You, you lose nothing, right? But if the communal experience enhances it in some way, then you could potentially be missing out. Yeah. No, I strongly agree with what you said. So it's kind of a funny thing because there have been many times over these last years where I've even made a note, go to a meditation center. Because I would tell myself, you know, even just as a researcher, as one who teaches meditation, I'm obligated to go experience this for the sake of my clients, if nothing else, right? So I know what they're going through. 
But for whatever reason, I never take my butt down there. And so maybe you, you know, maybe I don't even know why, but it, it isn't an anxiety about going there. Now, I, I can't say one little side. Okay. People that go to yoga classes, they, that is the exercise. They go there like 60 minutes long. They're 90 minutes long. I mean, it's a workout. They are done their fatigue to some extent. I do yoga and stretching all day, every day, you know, a couple chunks a day, but then little bits all the time. You know, I go on a walk every day with incline. So because my daily habits are so good, I really don't need extra yoga. I don't need to go out and do a class. You know, it would be too much. It would actually throw my stuff out of balance. I kind of feel that same way about going to a meditation center. Now that doesn't mean, that doesn't explain why I haven't even gone one time. I don't even. <laughs> Do we need to tweet say, at you? Do we need to tweet at you every day, Tommy? Just to go, like until yeah, until you until you get it done. Just create right. this so this this accountability. <laughs> but 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 my point was that I don't need it for my own balance in life. So the people that go to meditation retreats for seven days are generally speaking that aren't uh, people who come to where they they feel like they really need something you know they've gotten kind of stressed or whatever and they need some great release that's not true for all of them i mean a lot of them it enhances their practice tremendously they have a daily practice and then they go to these retreats which is like you know they're like you know at a higher level than i am in terms of how how much their practice is prioritized in their life mine's pretty high but there are people higher yeah, when you when you talk about meditating without any any inputs, yeah. um, that's like the most hardcore version uh, of that you could get is like a two week silent meditation yeah. ret- retreat oh, yeah. by yourself. Now I will say one thing: <laughs> I, I do have one reason why I don't go to retreats, and all I ever hear about people is they say how hard it is. You know, we talked to some friends not too long ago who have been to multiple retreats. They went to a five day when they came home on day three. They couldn't handle it. And so I've been to yoga classes, not a lot, but I've been to maybe seven or eight yoga classes over the years. And it's like, it's freaking hard. It hurts. It's like, I did, I mean, the stuff that they make me do, right, is, is more strenuous than what I'm used to doing. You know, I'm 60 years old. I've evolved my, my yoga stuff to where it's like perfect for me. So I do yoga and meditation for one reason, to reduce, unha- to reduce my unhappiness and reduce the unhappiness around me. Well, if I go do yoga and it hurts, that kind of goes against the plan. If I go to a meditation retreat and I'm just sitting there and my knees are sore and I'm starving to death, it's like, that's not reduction of suffering. Now, some people are going to do that and it's a payoff, right? They go through the pain, you know, got a pain before you can gain. They go through the hardship of a meditation retreat with the idea that they come home and now they're going to be better people. And that's great. I just don't need that. My path is fine. You're doing it at home. Right. And like it's goal centric, right? It's the, it's the why behind doing whatever you're doing. Some people are doing yoga to get more fit. Yoga kicks the living crap out of me personally, no matter how much I'm in the gym and lifting weights, my wife will take me to a live yoga class. And like, like I remember the, one of the first times she's like, yeah, let's, let's go to yoga in the park. I'm like, yeah, okay, sure. Like I'm, I'm fit. I've been working out. Like uh, I'm strong, you know, and I got there and I was like, what on God's earth did I get myself into? Like, yeah. It kicked my ass after like 20 minutes, um, right. but it's just a, it's a whole different, it's a whole different deal. All right. So this is my curiosity sated for now. Okay. Um, I don't know if my listeners will care about that <laughs> segment one iota, but like, it's just very, it, it's very interesting to me because I've considered doing yoga retreats myself or uh, 
meditation. I, I, I've, I've never pulled the trigger, but um, just wanted to get your thoughts. But so when you think about joy in your career at helping poker players, what's the first memory that comes to mind? Well, see, I'm not big on memories, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, but it's a recurring joy. I get it all the time. So I'm doing half hour coaching by the half hour now on Zoom. I started doing this two years ago and go to TommyAngelo.com. You can read all about it. I get great joy out of the coaching because it's just really fun working with people who are excited about learning and improving and being part of their improvement any any you know recent any recent memories of like folks trans yeah, well, tran- transforming um yeah coming coming to you at like point a and then having a breakthrough ending it at point b or c or d yeah i i could remember you know i mean those are happening all the time of one fellow who um he's an attorney had his own practice successful and he's like 40 45 now and he's like i've done everything i can do you know, in terms of accomplishment in the attorney business, he goes, I'm ready to move on. You know, I want to play poker for a living. And over a course of, you know, basically talking to him about once or twice a month for 14 months or whatever, he's moving to another city where they got poker and he's going to be playing, and he's playing poker for a living like right now, you know? Wow. And, uh, and I mean, it, it's happened before. I've talked people out of playing poker for a living a number of times yeah me too um, <laughs> um but the uh you know the the uh oh man the 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 transformations that people can go through it's like a hey, one guy recently do you do you ever use the the words or the concept give permission like when you're coaching like sometimes people they tell you they know exactly what they need and want to do but they just needed somebody to tell give them permission to do it you know, I don't. I don't use that phrasing. No, okay. but it, it's good. Well, it's good phrasing. I mean, yeah. It. It. it this, this is a guy who is a coach himself, and you know he wanted to write a book, but he didn't want his player pool, his own player pool, to know that he was like an actual teacher because they think he's still kind of a fish in the games. But he didn't like the idea of trying to be dishonest and like like lie if they ask him about his coaching or whatever you know and basically i gave him permission to stop lying about everything and just tell the truth about everything all the time and just go with that which is great great so friggin' happy right now yeah that's great feedback and he's he's working on his book with my editor it's going to be awesome and and he's just he's come out it's a form of coming out. And, you know, I've, I've had students that have done that too. They're like, you know, I don't really want people to know that I'm a professional or, or whatever. And they tell stories when people ask them what they do. And I'm like, dude, just say what you do. Like, who cares if they yeah. know that you play cards for a living? Like, I mean, for me, you know, I'm a 22-year-old white kid who's shuffling chips very proficiently. Like, I sit down at the table wearing sweatpants, and, like, the whole world knows that I didn't just wander in here from, right. you know, from, from the streets. Like, people pick up. People are not stupid. 
they pick up on the players that are playing very well, especially the good players. And the recreational players, they don't care. They don't care if you play poker for a living or not. As a matter of fact, a lot of times it piques their interest and they start asking you questions. So like, there's really no benefit to deliberately masking that you play cards for a living. And there's actually a lot of drawbacks to withholding that information just for yourself and and for everybody else too. Yep. I I told him the story about how uh, I went through all the same anxiety with elements poker, same stuff. Right. And it was like when the guys in my 2040 limit who learned about the, you know, at the casino learned about the book, they're like, okay, you know, that's cool. You kind of deserve this. You know, you're one of the top players here. It's all great. But the big, the high stakes, no limit gang, in that game that I played in, I was just like small cheats. And that's where my egos were. And I was like, these guys are going to think that I think I'm way better than I are. I mean, this is the shit I went through, just like everybody does, right? But that's how I'm able to tell this guy, you don't need to do that. Just tell the truth. Yeah. Don't worry about that's great. That for yeah. anybody listening, that's not telling the truth. Tell the truth. Like, <laughs> just just tell the truth. Like, the other thing is, you don't have to remember what you said. You, you don't have to. That. Yeah, you don't have to remember <laughs> what you said. You don't have to wear a mask. You don't have to be uncomfortable. Um, and if you're a compulsive liar, well, this <laughs> this podcast is uh, this is not the scope. So, so when you think of pain in your career helping poker players, what's the first memory that comes to mind? I mean, pain from my life, or just pain in helping pain from your life it could be pain from observation um you know players like the lawyer that's playing poker for a living folks that want to do something and then they can't or things fall apart just like as a coach just feel feeling that pain are you familiar with my book painless poker have you heard of that i i've heard of it but i have not okay. read. okay so it's a really long book and um most of it is set, it's fiction, and it's set in a place called the Painless Poker Clinic, which is me, the fiction, a fictional version of me, teaching a class to seven poker players. And what they all have in common is they were beamed in magically, Star Trek style, at their moment of greatest pain. Okay, so all – and each one of them is an archetypal player type. And each one of them has a story of what they were doing when they got beamed to the clinic. So here are seven stories that I concocted of the most painful things poker players could go through. At the, now, that's chapter two on. Chapter one, which is what I'm going to tell you about, is the story, true story of my moment of greatest pain. And it's about um, a hand I lost in, in St. Louis when I was, it was in 1995 when I was traveling around to play. And it was, uh, I'd gone down there three times, three different weekends, and my I went down to 3,000 and doubled up to 6,000. They were playing Potlum and Omaha. Potlum and Omaha game in 1995. Okay. It was half Omaha and half Holden. Now, but the, anyway, really bad players, really soft game. Even at my infant state, I had a big edge in this game. Went down the third trip with 10 grand. Ended up getting it all on the table because they were straddling. The game was only 5-5 five, five blinds, but it ended up being 5-5-10. Five, five, really loose game. Got down to my last 1,500. And I was going to be broke after, you know, these three weeks. Build it all the way back up to 11 grand in the session. And then with 15 minutes left to go before they kick you off the boat, because this was at a boat right next to the arch. There was only one other guy who was by far the, by far the best player in the entire player pool. He'd been crushing all the night. He had 10 grand too. 
everybody else had small stacks. Right? I should have quit. And this hand came up where I have ace three of diamonds. He has six, seven of diamonds. And the board ends up being deuce, four, five, eight of diamonds. So I flop a straight flush wheel, ace, deuce, three, four, five of diamonds. He flops a flush with a straight flush draw. He's got four, five, six, seven of diamonds. The eight of diamonds comes on the river. Now at this point, I've got, I, so in this story, the way it's written, it's a story of pain. This is my story of greatest pain, right? And so as a writer, I try to summon up all the pain that I was feeling, all the different kinds. And one of them was, this is in the car ride on the way home, okay? The only hand that, that I could beat once he got strong on the river was the fourth nut because I have the ace high flush card. I have the royal flush. The only hand I could beat would be the king high flush, right? And the betting on the river goes a 1,000 by me. Uh, Thousand by him, three thousand by me, ten thousand by him, and I snap call that last seven thousand with the second nut straight flush. Right? Who wouldn't call? And then immediately when I called, I knew it was I was B. But then the correct analysis is: this is the, the tightest player in the game, the most solid player in the game. He knows I'm a rock. He bet a thousand on the river. I made it three thousand on the river. He shoved. The only hand I can beat is a king high flush, right? Absolutely terrible call. Which he's never right? doing that with the king yeah, high flush. Yeah, I mean, not in a billion, billion years, right? Better chance that he misread his hand than that, that he had. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. No, and, yeah, for sure. And, and, and uh, so, but every kind of pain was there. The deep ego pain, the financial pain, the playing bad pain. You know, it was just all there. I don't even have any idea if this is related to your question, but <laughs> um, no, this is it, this is a painful memory. Yeah, it, it, well, it, it, it's so painful that when I was starting to write the book, I was like, you know, I was writing the stuff about healing pain, fixing pain, and I was like, you know what, I should just tell the story that, that I've been hanging on to for all these years of my moment of greatest pain. So then, when I started writing, I mean, there were times I was writing it crying. What, what did you fun. feel what, in that car ride home? What, what were the thoughts going through your head? What were you feeling? Suicide. Really? Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so the thing that made the, the part that makes it kind of a little bit. So here's what happened. It's a seven hour drive to get down there. It took me 22 hours to drive back because I kept pulling over and going to sleep. And I was wide awake. I had no idea why. I was so depressed. I just could not bear to be awake. My mind was saying, you have to stop. You have to stop. You have to either run into a light pole going 100 miles an hour or go go to sleep. I mean, I can't even imagine. It was bad. You know, and, and it took me 22 hours to get home. Uh, in that state, you know, I'd only been playing a few hours. Or, I mean, uh, I'm sorry, a couple of days. I was planning to stay a couple more days, and all of a sudden, I'm in my car coming home. Anyway, yeah, all, every type of poker pain was was drawn on <laughs> during that. It was uh, it was really brutal. And then you know, questioning. This was the big problem for me because I I would have success and I'd blow up my bank. I'd have success and blow up my bank. 
So the, the anxiety, and I've been through this with clients, the anxiety wasn't, am I good enough to win? Are the games beatable? It was like, am I ever going to not blow up my bankroll? Am I ever safe? You know, I might go a year where, okay, my bankroll goes from 20 grand up to 50 grand. I, was, I felt like at any moment, I might just destroy the whole thing. And that in itself was a form of pain. Yeah, just, just waiting for the other shoe to drop. In my conversation with Berkey, he talked about the same thing, building it up to 50K, going broke, building it up, thinking in his mind, at what amount of money do I no longer have to worry about going broke? Like 500K goes to broke. Just that this cycle over and over and over again. And, and that's a very, very powerful story. Uh, I'm very grateful that you shared it, especially the vulnerability of you know, thinking about suicide. And, and this was 97. Yeah, said. 95. 95. Yeah. So you had been in the game for eight years at this point. Have you had any similar occurrences? Was that the catalyst to, you know, was there a breakthrough made because of this pain? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing. No, nothing. Just say what? No, there, there were some more. So, so this is also in painless poker. So, painless poker is basically, you know, a short chapter of memoir, then the clinic, then more memoir, more clinic, more memoir, and then a really exciting last chapter. Okay, so one of the memoir chapters talks about the period of life when I was still self-destructive. Uh, before meditation. So this, so I'm playing in California, really crushing the 20, 40, and 40, 80 games at lucky chances. Okay. And, um, but then every once in a while I would get in self-destruct mode. So they had 8160 at Bay 101 at the time. That's where the very best players in the Bay were playing, the best limit holding players. Right. And that was also out of my bankroll. I mean, that scared me. Right. 40, 80, a lot of times I would split action with my buddy Alex and we, it was a little dicey at that time to play 48. But about once a year, I would go down to uh, Bay 101 and blow five or 10 grand playing 8160 limit hold'em. I could do it down there. People didn't know me. And and it was like a slow bleed kind of weird tilt that I had. But somehow I would find a way to lose, you know, a couple racks, which is whatever, five, 10 grand, $20 chip. So that was going on in, you know, 1999, 2000, 2001. I was still... I had a big uh, self-destructive need, whatever you want to call it. Streak, and, yeah. And, and I don't think it was ever going to just stop until I started meditating and fall in love and all that other good stuff. You know, I was really heading for a um, not not a good life. Not a good outcome, which yeah. unfortunately there are a lot of poker players that do meet that outcome, that don't mm-hmm. find the love of their life. Yeah. And- well, now I got to say, though, despite all that pain, that those years from, say, 97 to like 2003, when I started meditating, those six years had a great amount of joy in them. I mean, I was, I was living the life. I had plenty of bankroll the whole time, really. You know, I was never really in jeopardy of going broke and play, doing nothing but playing poker and hanging out with my buddies and going to concerts and I mean, it really, truly was a wonderful period, except for the pain. Okay, let's do lightning round. Let's let's do lightning round, and I'm okay. glad that glad that you mentioned that too, because the experience always matters, despite the results. I think mm-hmm. people yeah. focus a lot on the pain of of traveling, losing money. Um, all I've done is lose this year, six months of straight losses, yeah. and 
they we we have this ability to forget the good conversations, the good food, yeah. the good experiences, the relationships yeah. gained, dis- despite the monetary gain or loss. I think poker is much bigger than that. The experience of playing live is much bigger. Uh, when I lived at the Commerce and was playing sixty hours a week of high stakes, no limit. My best memories are with my friends. Period. They're not taking down a 20k pot or a 30k pot the right. the most valuable thing i gained was friendships with right. you know some people that have come on the show and, and one guy i consider to be my best friend in the world so ignore those lessons ignore those experiences or minimize them at your own peril focus on them because they they're at the heart of the poker journey absolutely well put um all right let's do lightning round okay What's something you feel folks who are chasing their poker dreams don't spend enough time thinking about? Bankroll. What's something you think they spend too much time thinking about? Uh, I can't think of anything. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what? You heard it here first. Tom, Tommy Angelo doesn't think you spend much time thinking. <laughs> I have a resistance to making generalizations like that. Sure. I had no problem with bankroll. Yeah. Okay. Next. Yeah. Next. I think for me, like variance, like the fear, the fear of variance, the fear of the other shoe dropping, I think is something people think way too much about. Um, okay. Just the, the simulations in their mind. Okay. Variance. Bad, bad things. Variance. There you go. <laughs> no coaching at all. Um, what's common poker advice you hear that you completely disagree with? Yeah, I wish you would have had me yesterday. Ask me these yesterday. See, I'm a writer. I need time to process these things. Yeah, um, maybe I, maybe I should have sent you the question list. Uh, yeah, ahead, no, ahead of time. Uh, I, what? Ask it again. Some common poker advice you hear that you completely disagree with. You know, everything. When we make these statements about okay, that's a piece of advice that is wrong. It's like, what the hell does that even mean? You know, if one person heard that advice and it made them play better, then it's right. You know, but if a hundred people heard it and it made a yeah, but if if a hundred people heard it and it made ninety nine people play worse, but I have no data. You know, so I just don't go into these. Yeah, it's opinion. It's just your opinion. You're allowed to have an opinion. uh, No, actually, I don't. I don't. I consciously avoid opinions. Consciously avoid opinions. Yes. All right. If you could erect a billboard that every poker player had to drive past before going into the casino, what would the billboard say? Just fold. Just fold. That's it. That's that's my billboard. And you want to expand any or no? No, no. It's one of those (laughs) messages that if you expand on it, it loses whatever it Uh, means. There you go. Okay. That's a good point. That's a good point. A lot of opinion questions here. A lot of opinion. (laughs) Go ahead and fire one out. A lot of opinion. Um, if you could wave a magic wand and change something about poker, what would it be? Well, I don't know if this qualifies, but I'd like to just see more uh, human decency. But I feel that way everywhere, so I don't know if that qualifies to poker. No, it, def- <laughs> it, it definitely qualifies. I, I'm with you 100%. Uh, oh, oh I, and, and lower rank. Let's go with that. <laughs> <laughs> I like the first answer. The second answer, like, whatever. Um, of course, Of course, we want lower rank. Yeah. Uh, but also we want people to be decent to one another because it's a fellowship. We're, we're playing a game with, with, yeah. with each other. and yeah. We need each other to even have the game. Yeah. Right? We actually come together as a team to create the game. And 
enjoy the fellowship of sitting around a group of people, the camaraderie of playing cards and having good conversations. So what's your current big goal? What's something you're working on that's near and dear to your heart? Okay, so I don't set goals. What I do is I aim at targets. Okay. All right. <laughs> and, uh, and right now I don't even have any targets, but I am involved in a huge project with Lee Jones. Have you heard about this? I have. Okay, Poker Simple, which is videos, right? So I've, I've sort of suspended my book writing uh, energy and I'm making videos. And we actually, it's kind of amazing that we really don't have a goal or objective with these videos. We are enjoying making them. And um, we don't even have any plan to monetize them. I mean, I'm getting a little more coaching business than I used to and selling a few more books, but that's, you know, nothing. What's the purpose of them? Just to teach because it's really kind of hard to explain. Lee came up with this idea. He's like, oh, you want to make videos. So he, we've known each other for a long time. So he's into the vlog world. He knows Jamin and all, all those guys, right? That's not my, I wasn't that experienced with them. So Lee's original idea was let's do a vlog. And I was like, well, I'm never going to be putting up like what I had for lunch or that. that (laughs) We we meditated again for the 10,122nd time. (laughs) Right. Exactly. So, uh, um, so one, you know, we, he lives down here. We started kicking around. We're like, well, what if we did it? You know, instructional video, you know, pick a small topic and we just talk about it. So one thing happened, one thing led to another. And at every stage, we just kept having fun with it. We're like, well, if we're going to do this, we got to learn Final Cut Pro. And I'm like, I've always wanted to know how to make movies anyway. So we've actually got to this point where we've got 10 videos out and we don't really have a like a legit reason for doing them <laughs> that, would, that could make sense, except that we're just liking doing them. And we're getting great feedback. People are coming back and saying this really helped. And I guess that really is the gratification of being a teacher. I'm realizing that. I'm not making that much money at it, but I love doing it. So it just must be that. Impact, sharing wisdom, um, yeah. scaling, sharing wisdom on a, on a, a scale. That's similar, similar yeah. to books. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, it is. It is. yeah. Do you have any books? I don't. I, I own a bunch of books though. <laughs> <laughs> I consume, I consume a lot of books. You're a consumer. Okay. That's, that's a project that, is in the future it's likely going to be related to this podcast actually it'll be a sort of a compilation of the wisdom and the journeys and the lessons that have come from this doing this show interviewing these amazing people um that i've that i've been fortunate enough to to have come on all right so tommy it's it's been great having this conversation getting to know you better uh, the final question is, where can the Chasing Poker Greatness audience find you on the interwebs? TommyAngelo.com. Everything is there. And my coaching's there. My book is there. Right at the top of the page is a link to the Poker Simple videos with Lee. And, um, yeah, I don't think there's anything else to, uh, to share. And, and yeah. I, I would just re-encourage anybody, including you, who, who – now or will ever want to have a meditation practice to get my book dailyness. It really is going to speak to poker players. It's got our kind of logic in it. Buy, buy a poker player for poker players. I think yeah. 
Yeah. Thich, Thich Nhat Hanh probably isn't writing meditation books for <laughs> poker players. Right, right. <laughs> and, and by the way, don't try to find Tommy at a meditation center in Oakland. <laughs> that, right. You're drawing pretty dead there. But <laughs> my man, thank you for coming on. I, I've appreciated Thanks, it. Brad. Have, a, have a, an amazing rest of your day, and I can't wait to uh, share this with the world. Really enjoyed it. Thanks. I'll see you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. If you haven't yet subscribed to the show, please take a moment to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. And once again, I wanted to let you know about PKC Poker. If you're on the lookout for a new poker platform where the games are safe and secure and the action's amazing, head to EnhanceYourEdge.com slash PKCPod to get your code and jump into the games. You must have a code to play as well as be 21 years of age or older. One final time, that's EnhanceYourEdge.com slash PKCPod. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time on Chasing Poker Greatness.